All right, joining me today is Michael Wild, now at Honeycomb, but a long veteran of, let's say, everything related to logs, IT management, and a variety of other things. So we're going to get into all of that. But Michael, I want to start with with something I saw on your LinkedIn. Mm. You are a certified yoga instructor, from what I could gather. So my question is, how did you get into yoga, and how does one become a certified yoga instructor? That's a great question, Brandon. Um, Long-time listener, first-time caller here. Um, I, um, for, I don't know, maybe my mid-30s to early 40s, um, I lived in uh, the Austin, Texas area in Dripping Springs. And uh, there's a fitness club there that you might know because you live there called Lifetime Fitness. And for the people who are in Austin, like I went to the one down on Mopac by Costco and William Cannon. And I started, you know, like my wife got me into working out and I was like, all right, I'm going to try this yoga thing. So I start, you know, doing yoga practice. And I thought the teachers there were really good. And, and, you know, it was one hell of a workout. Um, And then Lifetime Fitness uh, decided to start doing yoga teacher training. And when you get into anything, you start to meet the people and you're like, wow, these are cool people. The experience that they create is great. And I'm kind of digging this thing. So I went through a Lifetime's yoga teacher training program. Um, to become a certified yoga teacher, you generally have to do um, a, you know, some certified program, let's say like 200 hours of training. And there are a bunch of different levels. And there's a organization that kind of like declares that you're a certified yoga teacher. It's called a registered yoga teacher. And I went through their training um, and then, you know, did that, which was awesome as a yoga teacher, you learn a hell of a lot more about yoga than the student, more than I could ever uh, relay to a student in my class. But I just found it um, to be a great workout and to be an awesome way to help people understand how not to react to situations in a negative way or that would cause suffering. So after training, I had an interview, or in that case was an audition with Lifetime Fitness, and they said, hey, we want to hire you. Um, so I taught yoga at Lifetime Fitness in Austin for about four years before I moved to South Lake Tahoe. And um, as a teacher, the practice of yoga, whether you do it every day or not, it's always in your head. So if that's how you become a yoga teacher, get into it, start a practice, take a take a training course, and then perhaps get a job doing that. Now, are you, is it uh, the official term? Are you a yogi? Is that the right, is that the term of someone that leads a yoga class or does that mean something different? Um, Often the word yogi is, is just referred to anybody who's practicing yoga because um, when you're, if you're practicing by yourself, you are the teacher, right? You are doing it yourself. Got it. We like to say like, I'm a yoga teacher and not a yoga instructor because we try to guide people through it. Oh, the interesting thing about yoga is folks come into a class and think that I should be able to put my leg over my head or do all this other crazy pose stuff. Most of the time when you go to the gym and you go work out, you don't automatically think I want to pick up the 500 pound <laughs> weight or I want to bench 700, right? right. That's right. all that advanced yoga poses are. And they look beautiful. But it's really uh, a best yoga classes will teach you how to not react to things, even your own intimidation that you might not be as flexible as somebody else. 
Now, what's your take? Because I have taken, it's been a while. I think maybe, I don't know if this was a fad or not, but the hot yoga. So a while back, there was a place up here. Like this is all pre-pandemic. It's like, oh, it's like a different lifetime, right? But um, they did, I guess it was Bikram, you know, Bikram yoga. So did you, I don't know, do you have any take on the hot yoga? Is it good, bad? Is it just just like anything else? Do what you like kind of thing? I'm glad you mentioned that because the form of yoga that I taught was called vin- vinyasa flow. Mm-hmm. which means you're kind of doing one breath, one movement, and it was hot. So Bikram is about 105 to 110 degrees in the room, and it's for longer holding poses. So you might hold a pose for, you know, 30 seconds or two minutes, whereas vinyasa is kind of a flow. But yes, we heated the room up to about 95 to 98 degrees at Lifetime Fitness. We called it hot vinyasa at the time. And it brings all the challenge that you would expect to a class. Yeah, no, I think it's good. I, I've, you know, I've done it in a while, but I thought it was, uh, I, you know, and I guess this is sort of where, what people say about it. It's like, obviously the poses are challenging. I actually never thought I could do the really advanced poses. So I didn't make that mistake. I often went in there and just sort of trying to survive, <laughs> which was good. But it's, uh, it does like really take yourself out of your own. Uh, I don't know if it takes yourself out of your own thoughts or, you know, it just, it's a very calming, you know, like you're just very focused on like, the teacher in the pose. So as everyone says, right, I guess that's probably as big a benefit as anything else, right? Just being focused and uh, I don't know, just uh, present, if you will, just present in the pose, right? That seems to be so. Well, great. I don't know. Well, yeah. it sounds like we should all do some more yoga. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go, go figure that out at some point. I need to get back into it. This episode is brought to you by CBT Nuggets. Are you looking to build your IT skills? Do you want to learn more about IT security, cloud computing, or networking? Then it's time to visit CBT Nuggets. They offer over 350 courses and over 2,000 virtual labs. They have courses available on everything, including AWS, Linux, VMware, and even Salesforce. Best of all, it's available online so you can learn what you want, when you want. CBT Nuggets adds over 40 hours of new training each week, so there's always something new to learn. They also offer accountability coaching, allowing you to speak with a real person who can help you create a personalized learning plan, set goals, and check in to make sure you stay on track. To get started, visit cbtnuggets.com sdt. That's cbtnuggets.com slash sdt. There you can sign up for the seven-day free trial, which gets you full access to all their courses. You know, I look through there, and I'm always wanting to learn Python more. And there's a lot of courses there where you can kind of ramp up into it and uh, even do some advanced networking things with Python. Other topics like that, I may go check that out when I'm done recording this. Anyhow, you can start learning today by going to cbtnuggets.com sdt. And of course, we thank them for sponsoring our show. All right. So you, uh, like, as I mentioned in the open there, you've got all kinds of experience. I thought we would just start kind of um, at the beginning. So I think when we, we were talking right before the show that I think mm-hmm. I actually knew you uh, a little bit or uh, introduced to a mutual friend. And I think you were more in like the sales engineering kind mm-hmm. of role. And I think you've done a lot about that. So why don't we start there? Like, how did you find yourself uh, in sales engineering? And, you know, I think a lot of people would say they know what that is, but like, what does sales engineering mean to you? That's a, those are a couple of really great questions. And it, it, over my career, I've kind of wanted to go back to college, not to go back to college, to go to school, but to go to universities and say, there's this cool job called sales engineer. 
because in my current role, I'm an account exec. Everybody knows that sales dudes exist and everybody knows that a developer is a job, but there's this hybrid sort of role called a sales engineer, which like, if you're in college, you don't know that exists. And, um, you know, to kind of answer this question backwards, I mean, the job of a sales engineer is to communicate the business value of technology, right? Based on what the customer or prospect needs, uh, they might be involved in integration, doing demos, uh, walking people through the product, um, doing the more technical or sometimes hands-on part of the sales process. Um, I, I used to liken it to when I explained sales engineering to people, like imagine if you went to buy a car. And we all know we have a sales guy there, but we also needed a mechanic to help explain to you how all these explosions are not going to kill you that are happening inside this engine, like all this compression and blowing up. No, it's going to be okay. And you're going to love the ride, which is what SEs do. Or right. now they're kind of called solution architects. I got into this business being hired by a, um, an acquisition of IBM called Tivoli Systems uh, back in 1997. It was just after they got uh, acquired. Um, we know some common people that worked at Tivoli. They were headquartered in Austin and I was fresh out of college. I was actually a user of Tivoli at Cal State San Marcos and went to their training and their sales engineering manager came to, to Phoenix uh, to me and said, Hey dude, do you want a job? And I was like a business admin major and a super nerd, like all of us, like build your own computer, write a little bit of code. And I was like, Sure. And that started my career as sales engineering, which I did from 97 until about 2018. Yeah. You know, you bring up some interesting thoughts there. I, I do think, um, yeah, no one, I think, plans to be a sales engineer, right? At some point, like someone kind of just taps you on the, the mm -hmm. uh, shoulder and, and it's some kind of combination of like, you seem to like people and you also seem to know what this product does. I, and then like, it's usually like an account reference. Like I want you to come to me with this meeting and that's how you get promoted into sales engineering. You have a few successful meetings and then uh, enough time goes along. And it's like, well, you know, you know, we're moving you over. We're giving you a new comp plan and we're moving you into the new role. That seems to be, but your point about like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know if you asked anyone in college, maybe they would know solution architect, but they would probably just think it was something completely different. They wouldn't even probably, they probably think of the job as, is different. So yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know why, um, why we as an industry maybe don't promote that more, but yeah, it's a super, it's a super fun job, I think too. Right. I think that's, um, I, I did the, a stint in that. And I think a lot of people I know, um, that spend time, some of them will come back and say that was the best part of their career, especially if they've moved up into like executive roles, they'll often say, uh, sales engineering was the best part of their, their role. So having said all of that, mm -hmm. you know, many people would say you've now officially, join the dark side maybe joining sales engineering is like a step into the dark side but like <laughs> when you're an account executive like you're full all in dark side at least many people are going to uh, term it that way so what was yeah. what was kind of the evolution there like when at one point where you're like i just i want to own the quota where you're just like i'm doing all the work like how what's the moment where you're like no no i want to be the account executive now that's a great question so like sales engineers my fellow ones are out there. You have no idea of the amount of crap that an AE does, right? There's generally this, there's generally this position of, ah, the AEs just schedule meetings and the sales engineers actually sell the deal, which is totally not true. There's a, there's just a bunch of stuff. But um, after a while, like, I, I think we've changed the sales engineer title to like solution architect, partially because, 
we're not really engineering anything technically because engineering is an actual thing that even software engineers don't do. Engineering is a real thing involving mechanics. Right. But um, solution architect is probably actually a better title for that, even though they are in a sales role, meaning that person is on the sales team and their job is to um, help move along the sales cycle from the time at which you met the person to the time at which you either lost the deal or hopefully closed it. But you generally become good at the process of uh, understanding customer needs and bringing them to a solution. You are a salesperson, whether you like it or not. And before I went to Splunk, I was Splunk's first sales engineer in 2006. Um, And I was in monitoring companies. It's a company called Integrian, which later on got bought by VMware. And always in like monitoring space, did some time and secure email. But right in 2005, before I went to Splunk, I'd kind of been in the industry long enough. And I thought, you know, I think the next place I want to be is an account exec. Because every management job I've ever been promoted to in, I've worked my way out. Because like people suck at managing mentoring managers. Like if you're a great manager, I don't know how you did it, but good for you. Um, and then, like, I got a call from Christina Norin, who uh, was product at the Splunk, and this was in 06. And she was like, you want to come work at this log company? It wasn't that simple. And I was like, logs? I was into statistical monitoring. I'm right. like, sure. Right. And, you know, it was, it was a little bit more uh, detailed than that. But, hey, Splunk, that seems cool. Cool company. 23 people there. The log search thing seemed awesome. And then 15 years, 18, no, uh, 14 years later, I would go to do the same thing at Honeycomb, which is a company that does distributed tracing and observability. And I was totally not qualified to be a sales engineer at Honeycomb. Right. Totally not. (laughs) Right. Because Splunk is an ops company. You can get away with not knowing how to code. Uh-huh. Um, but when you're dealing with anything d- distributed tracing, sales engineers, solution architects actually need to be able to code in real languages because they're working with developers. Um, right. That said, we had one SE, this great guy named Nathan LeClaire, and he was he kind of he was that guy we pulled over from the engineering before Wild got there in 2018 when there was still like 22 people. And then you know, eight months later, I was like, the universe said. You should be an account exec so that you can be the world's most technical account exec because this is the most technical solution. Like selling to developers and working to developers, I think is the most challenging of all the things you could do in the IT industry, uh, even more than security people. So one, it was a good thing that I became an account exec, right? But two, uh, it, it, the universe provided that transition for me, which I was obviously delaying for about 15 years. So. Yeah, it's a lot. There's lots of good stuff in there. I think, yeah, like you said, I do think that's uh, what you ask any sales engineer, especially when you're just at a group, like a happy hour with just sales engineers, they'll all say like, yeah, the reps, they just schedule the meetings. I'm doing everything, yeah. right? And it's always funny because later on, it's like, well, did you, like, who called purchasing? Like, who figured out there was budget? Like, who actually got right. the contract? And then, you know, you and I think... Uh, when people have never done that before, they 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 tend to think it's super easy. Like, oh, I just they just send us the money. It's like, no, it does not it does not work like that. So, well, that's quite the that's quite the transition. But I do want to go back because I think you know you had a you know, just a fantastic run at Splunk. I don't you know mm-hmm. you were kind of going over how long it was and um and maybe we could start like sort of at the beginning and then the evolution of it. Yeah. So because I think Splunk when I first saw it 
correct me if I'm wrong. Was it like, it was kind of like a desktop tool. Like you downloaded it and you could use it on your desktop. Am I, am I is that wrong? If I've completely forgotten that, or is that, was that a world that you even played in way back in the day? It's not wrong. Um, the product initially was purely on-prem. Okay. And you know, the, the thing it went out to solve is like being able to search through logs. So in 06, it came out in late 05. You could download the thing, point it at a directory or folder on your laptop if you wanted to, if you had a bunch of logs, and it would just eat them all. And that was like one of the killer things with Splunk. Like it figured out the timestamp. It just ate all the logs, figured out the, if it was a multi-line or a single line event. And it was great because sometimes you had a log that you just grabbed. But shortly thereafter, um, often people would install Splunk on that machine that actually had syslog being generated to it or log4j or whatever. So then, you know, Splunk ran as a web server as well. So if you installed it on one of your servers, you could basically just log into, you know, you know, Brandon colon 8000. And you'd see, boom, all the logs that were there. This is pre-dashboards, pre-everything else. Their killer feature was and always has been being able to type words and get stuff back. Yeah, I mean, it was. I just think it's simple yeah. as like Google for logs at the time. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, people probably won't think of that as being that revolutionary. But at the time, I mean, it just like this, I don't know, kind of before Sherlock, before like, I don't know, just... It just felt like new. Like I remember just putting it on and then it was like that, that miracle moment of like you typed into some natural language search or just some keywords and boom, mm-hmm. came back all your logs. So um, looking back on it, like, you know, like I said, if maybe, you know, to people maybe who haven't experienced that, or like did it live in a world that, that didn't exist? It was, it just was like revolutionary. And I just remember Splunk just like, I just remember people just talking about that all the time. In fact, they would talk about that in lieu of like, how they would use it, right? It was just more like Splunk is great at searching logs. You should get it. You should try it. You should do it. Um, and this is kind of what I, I I kind of wanted to get into today is like, like it's I find it hard to explain. Someone that were to ask me like, okay, like what does Splunk do today, mm-hmm. right? It's like, and I even went to their website before this. I mean, I kind of feel like they they're everywhere, right? They're in like you could say they do security. You could say they do IT management. You could maybe they have a hand in like SIM and security event management mm-hmm. and um. And just, I just kind of come back to, and maybe this is my history with it. It's just sort of like, it's great at searching logs. All of the things I just said are valid reasons to search at logs, but I don't necessarily feel like Splunk owns any one of those domains, but what's your take? You were there for a long time. Mm-hmm. How do you think of it? Uh, good question. I think uh, if you look at, there's Splunk, like the log search thing, which is what we most people know of uh, as Splunk. And if you rip open the whole thing, you're like, Every company is almost really a data analysis company, right? Because that's what we're helping with, whether it's Datadog or Prometheus or or Chronosphere or Honeycomb or Elastic, right? But the biggest data sets in, you know, modern IT are right now logs. Traces will eventually outpace logs um, for operations, but they've become, Splunk has kind of become a huge suite because even early on, the mission of Splunk was to make the world's machine data usable, accessible, and value to everybody, right? That like, that's drilled into our head. That's our mission statement. <laughs> right. So if it's a machine data, I should be able to like analyze it, do some analytics on it, search it, do security stuff with it and all of that. And they've, 
added products and technologies into that as well. The killer feature that Splunk always had was its search language. Um, I And the other thing is, it was also like, now they have this as a funny marketing thing, but the t-shirts were viral. Like we'd go to Linux world in 2006 and I'd be doing demos and we had people just lining up for the t-shirts of like, take the SH out of IT. And like, I created this one called because ninjas are too busy. And out of that came this idea called the Splunk Ninja. And I did this right. like podcast. And now it's actually iconography at the company. But really, um, a, these are just tools to help people analyze how their production environment is going or, you know, maybe how their how risk is being dealt with. Right. Because security and ops are two different things. Um, that's kind of how I see it as. And that's how it will probably forever be. But. Then again, I just explained every IT product. Almost. <laughs> that's right. So. At some point, everything gets so yeah. big. Well, I, could, I think I joke about that all the time. It's like, yeah, yeah. at some t- point, every IT management or monitoring company eventually like, you know, puts a, at least a foot in security and vice versa. Every security company sort of goes the other way. And that's just like, it's just the natural convergence, right, of, of the two. Right. So, all right. So you've got the history here. So mm-hmm. obviously, you were at Splunk for a long time. You were even at Tivoli. feels like, you know, we all kind of come up in this background of systems management bunch of different ways to do it, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of log management. And so, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have um, you on was specifically observability, right? Because mm-hmm. I have been openly a little bit, I'm always a little skeptical, right? Of like the new, new thing with the new name, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, is it different than before? And if so, how is it different than before? Because we've all like, you know, as you were kind of running through, we've all been told, you know, uh, the new thing is the way and it will solve all of our problems. And then maybe that doesn't always come true. So let's, let's um, kind of start at the beginning. Like how do you design, uh, define observability and where do you see observability coming from? It's a great question. Um, I'm not going to talk about the whole control theory definition, the observing the state of the system by its outputs, right? Right. Observability to me is a behavior. It is a behavior. Um, the best analogy that I've come up with, I don't know if you, do you, ever, do you drink wine or do you eat vegetables? All, all of the above. I've all the above, both. right, right. <laughs> so imagine you, uh, you know, this is going to like piss off all the Texas people. Texas has not the greatest wine, but there are wines. Listen, just a quick aside. I think that's totally true. I don't okay. think no, no one in Texas should be angry okay. about that. Please continue. Right. So imagine, okay, but let's keep with this. Imagine you are a wine producer out there in Fredericksburg, that area, right? Um, you, you actually have to monitor a lot of things about your process, right? You got to have some monitoring to make sure that you know when the irrigation system is failing. You have to have monitoring to make sure that you know people show up to work, Um. You have a security system that makes sure that, you know, folks don't run off with a bunch of cases of your wine and whatever system that you have, like um, that's doing the aging of wine. You've got all sorts of telemetry that might come off that. Uh, We go to Napa a lot because I live in the Lake Tahoe area and they've even got like these laser image recognition things where grapes flow through and they can tell like if the grape is good or not. Right. But um, that's the idea of monitoring. What have we left out in the process of growing grapes or creating a harvest? What we've left out is the actual 
viticulturalist. We've left out the farmer. Okay. We've left out the act that they do every day to look at the climate that they're in, to see the soil that their crops are growing in, to taste the product that they are growing, um, maybe even to notice things that they hadn't thought of because now some birds came and migrated here, or there's some new bug. These are all the things that you cannot actually predict. These are all the what we call unknown unknowns in observability. And what's the goal? The goal here is to have a harvest, a great harvest. If you grew your grapes and then set a calendar appointment in you know six months and said, time to harvest, you'd probably have no idea if that, that would create great wine. But the act of going out every day in the same thing, like I grow jalapenos here in Nevada, and it has to be, you know, I have monitoring set up to make sure my drip irrigation works, but I got to go out every day. I got to see what's happening. That is observability. Okay. Meaning to, there have been this practice of not just deploy And I'm not talking about the DevOps part of like deploy, throw over the wall, because we like to say that that doesn't exist anymore because now developers are on call and, and maybe we're, we're not throwing things over the wall, but how do you know that the code you deployed in production is doing what you wanted it to do? How do you know if the fertilizer that you put on the jalapeno peppers had a positive or negative impact? You don't wait. You shouldn't. Wait until the monitoring alarm goes off. You shouldn't wait until two weeks later to go, ah, man, they're all dead. Like the jalapenos died. Observability is the practice, getting up every day, taking a look at how the code that you deployed in production is behaving um, and asking questions based on what you see. That's different than the idea of these are the 50,000 known unknowns These are the 80,000 alerts that I have, and I always want to be alerted on them, and you absolutely should do that. But the act of taking a look at production is quickly after you make a change makes observability more like gardening or growing because you only grow one thing, right? B of A only grows one B of A. Vanguard only grows one Vanguard. There's only one, right? I might grow 50 jalapenos. But there's really only one. A matter of fact, uh, you know, Robert Mondavi, like they grow a lot of wines, but there's only one 2021, right? So that entire harvest is a reflect of that year. And since we make one, we should take care of it as if it is a flower or jalapenos or wine and go visit it every day and see how the climate and the change that happens affects the code that we built. Does that make a little bit more sense? Uh, it does. In your so yeah. let's, let's drill into it. Cause I think, you know, the history mm-hmm. is kind of interesting here. Cause I, I kind of feel like let's just go to maybe an IT system is that mm-hmm. a lot of times, like you put up a system for the first time, right. And you're like, there's an operations person and you know, you maybe do just like CPU memory disks is the server there. Right. And then over time, right. You start to have some outages or some issues and, um, as you discover each one of those issues, you, you know, if you're, if you're good, and most people I think do this, it's like 
they do some type of try to do some simple root cause analysis. And, and it could be, you know, this is back to your, maybe your spunk days. It's like, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll, they'll notice like, oh, actually when we see this log message, right? Like that's a clear problem. That's a, a, a an issue. And let's write a, a rule, you know, in Splunk or whatever to like notify mm-hmm. us for this kind of thing. And so, uh, and then over time you, you build up a lot of like log management rules, you build up, uh, potentially you add more types of uh, monitoring, uh, you know, SNMP and, you know, WMI and just like, you know, every type of thing, right? You just keep adding it. But, but hopefully you're doing it because like, to your point about it, over time you observe, right? That like, oh, when this happens, uh, it would be great for me to be notified and things like that. So I would call that, I don't know, just let's just call it like a classical systems management approach. Like, and then, you know, maybe five or 10 years go by and it's like, you got like, you know, you got all these dashboards and frankly, you probably have dashboards you don't even use anymore. You're not even sure why they're there. They're just like, I don't know. It's been here for 15 years. Leave it up there. Right. So I, I don't know, but is that like, have we been, is, is, is what I described there observability? Is that like, I mean, were we doing observability when we were, maybe not even calling that we were just sort of adding monitoring uh, metrics and a uh, log file uh, searches um, just to make our systems better. Was, would that be called observability or am I oversimplifying it? Um, you're neither, right? Th- that itself is um, reactive and then potentially proactive monitoring, right? Because if we see a condition um, we want to be notified if it ever happens again, but think about it. What drove you to go find the condition? Right. Okay. Yeah, the outage or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or it could be an outage, right? So, like, if you separate two things, like observability of infrastructure components, um, infrastructure components, I think, are a better sort of monitoring scenario because you have conditions that you've been aware of. Like, hey, I kind of know. Like, we we do at Honeycomb, we use Honeycomb to Honeycomb, Honeycomb with Honeycomb, but. <laughs> Um, we have a practice of going in and looking at production after we deploy, but right. we also have a lot of monitors. Like if this, if CPU on this type of node goes high, that's actually an indicator of something is going to go wrong. Right. Like we've learned that there are known unknowns that we actually want to monitor for because um, it's almost, we've almost root caused it. Like if right. this goes to this level, some bad things are going to happen, right? But the what drives you into go looking for the stuff is really more of a modern thing, right? We didn't, like, yes, it's not uncommon for you to walk, wake up in the morning, just hit the Splunk error box or Elastic or whatever and go, error, click. But you generally, you, you don't do that, right? You might look at a set of dashboards. The folks, though, that are in ops depending on how deep they're embedded um, from ops or now as SRE into engineering um, may not be on top of everything that's being deployed. So once you create that monitor you and then you deploy again, the entire state of the system is changed because you just did another deploy and the conditions at which that monitor exists now are everything before this, right? So there's right. no guarantee that even if you did that monitor, like it's important to do monitoring that you're ev- that's ever going to trigger because the st- state of the system change versus if we say I'm an engineer, the charity majors is a co-founder of honeycomb and she's a luminary. And one thing she said was, um, and you could probably relate to this after you wrote that code or that shell script for me, cause I'm more of like a bash guy. 
Um, that's the last time you knew what that stuff did. That's the very last time you knew exactly what the intent of your code was. I write a shell script, uh, and then I go to that thing four weeks later, and depending on how long it is, I'm like, what was this thing doing? Now, if I took at the time at which that was closest to me actually knowing what the thing I built did, then I deployed it. And then I went to production and, and said, okay, I know what this code is supposed to do. I know it's memory profile. I know how it's parallelism is supposed to be. I know how many times it's supposed to hit this database. Is it actually doing that? That right there is observability. And we haven't had a lot of great tools to be able to do that other than the log tools, which themselves don't have a, the connective tissue between every function call that developers really need. We did that on systems like with S-Trace and P-Trace, and now people are doing eBPM. But distributed tracing is the thing that sort of came around in 16, 17, 18, when we started moving to more distributed systems where the developers responsible for it have to understand the interactions between the code. That's really hard to do in log systems. And that's what a lot of the modern observability solutions are kind of focused on. So let's drill into that because I think yeah. distributed tracing, I think you know, a lot of us like hear that and I think we, we mm -hmm. think we know what that means. And, but like, maybe give us, just go a little bit uh, deeper. Sure. Like how, what is distributed tracing? And I mean, I think the obvious thing to contrast it with is like logs. Cause most people just think like yeah. I look in the logs to see what happened. So go ahead. Like distributed yeah, tracing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So distributed tracing is basically just like connected logs. Okay. Um, it's connected logs, um, but it's a bit more detailed, right? So, um, if we look at the things we might need to know about a system, okay. If I have a big monolith, I can probably get away with just doing printf for every um, for every function call that I make, and maybe I have like you know timestamp and severity and user and all of that. Um, and if you use fairly sophisticated tools like Splunk, there's a bunch of search commands that can help you sort of like link log events together, although it's, it's okay. Because what we really want to find out is like, okay, the login happened and it was slow. Well, then what happened next? Then what happened next? And then what happened next? Well, if you have a monolith, at least that system is deployed on one pile of stuff. And logs can work there. As a matter of fact, you can use command line tracing tools like strace and ptrace to actually see what the kernel is doing, to see how function calls are being made. And if you're an engineer, you don't know what that is, just try it on your laptop and you'll be like, wow. Or maybe just said it some way, like you can, if it's all in one machine, stack trace, you can kind of just see the calls as they happen and you yeah. can just watch it. Uh, but obviously go and I'll set you yeah. up here. It's like, then you've got, but when you get yeah. more computers and distributed yeah. systems, like, well, you can't do that anymore. So go ahead. Right. So now right. what do we do? So then we take, well, we're going to take a bunch of log forwarders and going to put them on all the distributed systems and collect all the logs into one spot and try to make sense out of it, which is good definitely have to do that um distributed tracing uh it's a thing okay the um all people instrument their code most people are like i have to instrument my instrument my code you already do it when you do that printf statement or you do that logris or whatever library you choose you're making a decision like there, people say like unstructured logs there's no such thing like a human made the decision of like percent time this and that and what i want to put in my log right and at splunk we used to really encourage people to create structure in your logs Yep. 
um, make key value pairs so that cool systems can figure out and do analytics. But when we now want to understand this login request, and it took 15 seconds, right? Think about login. It takes like 20, 30 seconds. You're just like pulling whatever hair you don't have out. Well, what exactly, what happened? But what not, ha- what, not what happened for everybody, because everybody's situation was fine just for Brandon. So I got to find everything related to Brandon and I got to find every function call that that, hap- that happened. Well, distributed tracing allows me to instrument my code and do something called passing context from one function call to another. So let's say I hit, boom, the login box. That's in Michael Wild, password, click, and maybe that's actually going to go to Okta. Or maybe it's going to go to Okta or maybe it's going to go to, you know, uh, ADF, uh, Active Directory. But then, you know, maybe Okta, for example, is actually going to then make another three calls. Or maybe I have my own API gateway in the middle. Um, Distributed tracing allows me through the use of HTTP headers to create what's called a trace ID, which is the entire record. It's It's the numeric identifier or GUID that says, this is Brandon's transaction, right? And Brandon's transaction, each function call has a name. It has a duration, maybe has an error code and might have a parent. So when Brandon passes, when Brandon clicks on login and that API call is sent over to like an authentication system, um, a trace span gets generated. It's like, it's just another type of instrumentation. It gets generated. And then that authentication system says, okay, I'm doing my thing. I'm gonna record some telemetry. And holy cow, there's already a trace ID, cool. I'm going to be a span. Now I'm my own little log and I'm going to pass that off to the next call. And in distributed tracing, you see what's called a waterfall chart from the beginning of a request to all the little calls that happen. And that helps us understand exactly what software was doing from the time that Brandon tried to log in while he went to get some coffee because it was taking 20 seconds. Ultimately a developer is going to have to say, wow, there's an N plus one database problem ha- happening here we didn't know about versus if you just had static logs, you might not know how each of those calls linked to each other, that they were Brandon's. And in the world of microservices, if you don't do distributed tracing, I kind of think you're in trouble, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> at that are. point in time, it's not ops that's debugging that function. It's not ops that's debugging that. It's engineering that's debugging that, and they actually need to know how their their entire code path is working. Today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. Are you still using SSH keys, RDP logins, and database credentials? Do you have a worn-out Post-it note with all your passwords on it? Well, it's time to access your infrastructure like it's no longer 1999. StrongDM is the only modern infrastructure access platform. It creates a seamless, secure, and observable air gap between your staff and the critical infrastructure that powers your company. With StrongDM, you can instantly revoke access to every database, Kubernetes cluster, or server with just a click. You can automatically log every query, SSH, and kubectl command to know who did what, when, and where across your stack. And you can eliminate credentials from end-user workflows to deploy access that's zero trust and least privileged by default. Trusted by the fine folks at Betterment, Peloton, SoFi, and Chime, StrongDM is the only way to deploy secure access controls in a way folks love to use. Don't take my word on it. Check out StrongDM for yourself with a free demo. 
Sign up at strongdm.com slash SDT. That's strongdm.com slash SDT. And of course, we thank StrongDM for sponsoring our show. Okay, I like it. So we got it. So distributed yeah. tracing, we're going to pass our context around, and we're going to be able to like see exactly what's going on. So hopefully we can quickly diagnose those things. So let's go through. Let's just like cool. maybe dive into a little bit of honeycomb. So first, I'm just going to assume, let's assume like I, I'm a big company. I built some great uh, web app or whatever. It's, it's distributed. Mm-hmm. It's doing great. Um, I'm going to say I've gone ahead and I've deployed uh, Datadog because everyone's using Datadog now. Sure. And we got it going. And I don't even know. I mean, maybe I should stop there. It's like, would, is Datadog and Honeycomb a competitor? I, I feel like I, I probably answer this question for someone every conceivable mm-hmm. way. Like, are, are they, the, are, do I need both? I'm sure you have customers that use both. How do you, when people ask you that question, what do you tell them? Everybody competes with everybody. Right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, and, and Splunk isn't really happy about that, man. Like they, <laughs> Datadog came up and just like is adding feature after feature after feature and it's become an entire suite there i think they're like uh i just speak for like all of us that worked in system yeah. management everyone's bitter if you didn't work at datadog you're bitter about it you're like i had this i worked at a company that did the same thing like right. I, I can't tell you how many conversations they had but anyway they they're doing well so continue on datadog well, it's, honeycomb uh-huh. it's great well like honeycomb our general focus is let's pare down the tool set like there is a lot of things that we think most people don't need and the um target the target at which we're going after is people who run and support production directly okay when i have engineers on call there's two things i need to do keep production services up and running and fast and make engineers happy okay well actually i don't need to make engineers happy i only need to make customers happy so i can beat the hell out of my engineers i can wake them up in the middle of the night um i can deal with the attrition problem associated with that just to keep customers happy. Our kind of focus is generally, let's see if we can build tools to make it so that engineers can find the source of problems quickly, find, uh, understand their, the behavior of their code, see how you're doing and specifically whom life sucks. And that that's some features unique to Honeycomb, but like, can someone use Honeycomb and not Datadog? Sure. Can someone use Datadog and not Honeycomb? Sure. Once someone starts to do what I talked about earlier, observability, not just becoming a team lead and saying we're the observability team, but once you implement the practices of observability where you're basically going, all right, got my coffee. We deployed last night. How is my stuff doing? That's when the differentiators between tools generally um, show their show themselves. All right, let's pause there. Let's go. Let's, yeah. let's actually like run through and see what it is. So, okay. So for purpose of this, I built some distributed systems doing really well. It has load. I've done Datadog, but for the purposes here, I'm just using the traditional systems management. So I've got yeah. like red light, green light. It's all going. Maybe I got a little log monitoring. Uh, I saw charity majors talk. I, I saw the keynote she gave totally bought off. Like she's luminary. She sold me. She told me the story and I'm, and I come back and I'm telling the team, we're going to do it. And I'll make them all watch it too. They, they watch the talk. All right. So, so we're setting it up. We're like, we know we, we don't have it. We don't have honeycomb set up. We have not done anything special, right. To do the distributed tracing stuff. Like we've mm-hmm. maybe heard about it, but we're like, we haven't done anything. And, and we either call you or, or, or someone on your team. So trying to take, come in, help us get our app ready to go so that we can be using honeycomb and we can do observability. Like where do we start? First, Start with open telemetry. Okay. Open telemetry is great. Um, 
I, I guess you could call it standard. It's a CNCF project um, that is trying to move instrumentation for metrics, logs, and traces. Some people call these three pillars, but it's really just three data sources. Is trying to move it into a way that we, the software producer, um, can have perhaps one way to always instrument our code, however we choose to do it, and then have a choice on where our data should go. Like I advocate open telemetry hugely as a way to de-risk your investment in any sort of monitoring or or observability, because then you own your instrumentation. You're not embedded. You know, there's not a vendor agent that's sitting there that you have to make sure you just good and your security team has to deal with and there's um the switching costs become not free but low when you can send data in a format to any vendor the reason why i say switching costs are not free is because switching costs aren't just about data they're about like i've got dashboards and alerts and i've got users and all of that right first start with open telemetry because there are um auto instrumentation toolkits libraries that you can put in your code and send to any vendor that supports open telemetry, which is about almost all of us right now. So right. That's and this is hopefully the first. end of right. All the agents like Tivoli sort of pioneered that concept, Tivoli agents, mm-hmm. BMC had agents, you know, uh, Mercury interactive, you go on and on. Everyone had their own like little yeah. net IQ. And so, so really, you know what you're saying there. And I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's like, Hey, let's just all get to the instrument instrumentation mm-hmm. in a standardized way. And we're going to do open telemetry. Sounds great. I'm like, yep. you know what? I'm right now. I already like you. You brought you in. You told me to do this. I'm I'm going to do it. I'm going to get everything going with open telemetry. Now what? Well, you got to turn things on. You got to run some <laughs> transactions. As a matter of fact, like if you're looking into open telemetry listener, the uh-huh. open telemetry collector, its job is to send data to different places. It's also an agent. So you can put the open telemetry collector on a node and collect all the statistics from that node to ship them elsewhere. So it's right. like, maybe that is the agent. Then you got to send it to somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say if you're talking to us at Honeycomb, you might, uh, you know, configure your open telemetry collector to send it over to our API, sign up for an account, all that other stuff. I'm not marketing that at Honeycomb, but you're going to send us one of three things. Maybe it could be just logs. Um, and all that stuff is structured. Um, it might be some metrics, right? Maybe your Kate's metrics and all of that. Um, and then hopefully you've started to do some trace instrumentation where you're in, you're emitting lots of great things, like not just HTTP path and, you know, status and all of that, but, you know, database identifier, customer ID, all these types of things that um, one would normally call high cardinality attributes. Uh, but they're the real meat of actually what's happening. Send them, for example, for Honeycomb, send them to Honeycomb. And we built an engine based on Facebook's scuba project. So if you, uh, some Honeycomb founders worked at Facebook. And um, if you're interested, there's a cool white paper on how to do that. But we basically built a high cardinality, high dimensional analysis system that you can use to kind of do the walk outside and check on the jalapeno peppers, query the interesting things that are happening in a very visual way and use analytics to get to the right trace, the right log events. Because what I have seen and I got good at at Splunk, and I'm, it's funny because when I told Charity Majors in the job interview, I was like, hey, I've spent 15 years like 
trying to convince everybody to save every piece of log and I'm here to undo that. Right. It's like, whoa. She's like, what? <laughs> and really, um, the log volumes have gone up. Nobody's doing sampling. And if sampling is a whole nother topic, if you ever want to explore it, like people should sample the hell out of their data, but you have to do it right. And you have to have an engine that supports sample data. But ultimately data comes over there. You can ask questions and then you take that to a higher level and start to look at things like, how do I understand how I'm doing and for whom life sucks? And for that, you use what's called a service level objective or an SLO. Okay. Now, so let's go back a little bit. So yeah. in the, in our example here, um, I developers like, so uh, let's just say like, you know, we built a good app. We did, uh, we implemented some log manage, uh, some logging features in our products, right? Just, and we typically do it, but we didn't nest. And let's say we, we did some basic standardized stuff. Like we do time mm -hmm. of day and, you know, we, and things like that. But do when I am starting to take this on, and you kind of talked about, I think, high cardinality data there. I think that's what you said. So it's like, mm -hmm. do, I, do I need to almost like have like a meeting or like a white paper and say, hey, everybody, um, when you start logging or for the existing logs, I want you to, to, to add like these attributes or do it this way. Is there like a process I need to kind of take the development team through to be like, here's how you should be thinking about like writing your log so that, so that when I start pumping the data to Honeycomb that it's useful to you? Does that need to happen? It's a generally good thing to do, but not just for the heck of it. Like if you, if you go to the end of this entire discussion and there's some, you know, business dude in a suit, right? Cause right. that's how we wrap. We, <laughs> we, we icon, we iconify business. Blue blazer. He has a blue yeah, blazer on. Blue blazer. Unfortunately, guy. it's a male too. Unfortunately, that's, that's unfortunate. Right, we have to whatever, change all those yeah. perceptions. Go on. Right. So there's a business person that's in a suit and there's a problem that somebody is bitching at them about, right? One of right. the top customers or whatever. They're ultimately looking at their responsibility is the customer or whatever the customer is, right? Right. Could be somebody buying a t-shirt, could be a third party API. Their questions are things like who, like, uh, how are we doing? Like, how is a specific user doing? What's their experience? Like all these little attributes that they naturally ask that we as software people often don't. Like I just need to know memory, CPU, process, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the end of like what types of questions might I get, whether it's I need to ask them or someone's going to ask me, if I have the telemetry to be able to answer well to be able to ask those questions because answering is a different story whether you actually can do it but if i record telemetry that will eventually help me answer questions that get deeper and deeper to my customer experience that's something that we might want to do as a development team now what we generally see people doing is developing like wrapper libraries for instrumentation so they might have you know hey you're gonna you're gonna build some function call to do some service you must instantiate, you know, uh, cost, you know, like info dot software defined talk apps dot, you know, com dot whatever. And you must use that. And that will, that will basically capture all of the things that you're using or maybe insert them like every span or every log has customer ID duration, you know, shoe size, hair color, and all of that. Right. Um, Having some general set of telemetry that you want to collect, it's a thing that I've seen in a lot of organizations where there are people looking after that. 
Um, and if you can give developers tooling to make that easier, like a wrapper library, that's a, that's a pretty good way to go. But yes, you should make some decisions on what you want to put in logs so that the next developer after you have retired because you went public <laughs> can like actually ask the questions of the code that you wrote. Okay. So to your point then, so it's really, if I haven't done this already, I probably, I probably do have some standardized mm -hmm. log utilities, right? It, it, the most realistic is like, you may sit down with that team and say, Hey, turns out we're going to do some different stuff here. Let's go ahead and update the uh, logging, the generalized logging utility. And let's, let's uh, add all this stuff. So it has all the context, right? That yeah, probably, sure. uh, it seems like, and then I don't know, is that something like, do you, does uh, Honeycomb sort of have like a, a version of like, Hey, this is what we'd like to see. Or is it sort of just kind of up to the development team to like, you know, kind of just do what makes the sen most sense for them. Like what's the best practice there? Yeah. I mean, you know, vendors like us are good at, you know, because we see the end use case. We all build our products for maybe the most sophisticated or most simple end use case, right? Right. So we're generally in those, that's what sales engineers are really good at doing is helping the customer understand one, what you can get out of this and what problems it solves. So there's no auto instrumentation for customer ID. Right. There's no auto instrumentation for like hair color or shoe size. There right. is auto instrumentation for all sorts of things in Java.net and Node. Mm -hmm. But it's the, you know, sort of the tidbits of the real important things that make your app different than the auto instrumentation that most vendors should be helping the customers with. Like, hey, do you want to break down by user ID? Do you want to break down by like region? Do you want to yep. break down by shoe size. I don't want to keep repeating shoe size, hair color, and I'm looking at my own baldness, but, um, this is the domain to your point. Like it's, it's the domain, the domain specific right. things, yeah. right? It's like you yeah. want, so you're going to give me some advice. Like here's the generic stuff everyone needs. Yep. And then you'd say like, here's where you should put your domain specific, uh, information. And then I cut you off before. So let's now go back to your service level objective. I think SLO is where you were going and say, okay, now where does that, like, what is that? And how does that fit into this, this world of observability that we're getting into? Yeah, that's a great question. So like one, you also have to give people tools. Like there is this, if, if you are listening and you, and you are interested in, there is a tool that Honeycomb built called bubble up. It's like in the respect that it, the next time I hurt myself, like a, my knee or my elbow, um, the doctor doesn't just cut open my arm and like start looking around. They take an MRI and that MRI basically obviously gives us our you know, hey, this is weird. That's weird. I'm going to look at that. Um, there's a tool in Honeycomb called Bubble Up, which we actually use in SLOs, which lets you draw a box around, let's say, some latency, and it will give you all these dimensions of what's kind of different about that versus everything else. I actually wish I had that when I was on call in the premium support team at Splunk because the last year I, I actually – it's cool. It's like I'm one of the few AEs that has ever been on call. But I wish I had more sophisticated tools to be able to analyze data. And that's one of the things we do. But the SLO is so simple. An SLO is really just our objective. Some people call that uptime. But uptime is a crappy way to look at things. Because if you go to uptime.is and you type in the number of nines, you'll find out the amount of allowed downtime. Right. And there's a lot of money that can be lost in allowed downtime. So you can be high five in because you're at four nines. And there was right. a million dollar trade that failed because all minutes are treated the same. But the SLO's goal is to basically say, what are good events or good time periods? What are bad events? What shit doesn't, what stuff doesn't matter? Okay. Right. 
And then let's measure the good versus the bad in a time range. Because when we're doing things like just thresholding, like error rate goes up over five minutes, those five minutes are often too short of a time frame to really be to be meaningful. There are situations where it is like financial services company. If trading goes down for 10 minutes, it's a problem. You get an SEC call. But we've, we're trying to make developers happy. Not we, but the industry should. And then everybody who does monitoring knows there's a thing called alert fatigue, right? So if the alerts that you're doing that you created five years ago, because that one root cause scenario you want to be alerted of, you know, it from whether it's from Nagios back then to Datadog now, Every time there's an alert, there's going to be somebody's job to deal with that. And the severity and the relation of that alert to does it freaking matter to a customer is not well connected. The SLO allows me to wrap an understanding of either an API call or a customer experience and to measure all of those in a time range. So I can say, hey, we're at 99.98. Like Honeycomb... Like nobody's user interface is really at 99.99. But most of them are at 99.9. Three nines isn't bad. We have an ingestion service. We run that at four nines plus. If I have four nines or three nines, the sort of inverse quantile of that is 0.1%. That's my error budget. That's what I allow myself to fail. If you go to uptime.is and you accept the 52 minutes of downtime, that's your budget of failure. What we want to get to the point is we're not, we're not looking at the outage. The outage happens. Amazon goes down. Those are unforeseen. They're, you're just dead. But the SLO gives us the ability to have a goal of how we want to succeed as a business. It allows us to guide and subordinate features to reliability. Because if you go below 99.9%, That's your own goal internally. Like, hey, we need to be better than that. Let's stop shipping features. Let's bring reliability and resilience in and then start shipping again. And then, hey, if we can alert before we actually get down, I have a customer that did this. They got got an alert that their SLO was about to burn or their error budget was about to burn. And, but like six, eight hours before it was. And this is where analytics really start to help. Like that's the... Not AI, but these are the things you want people to do. Notify us that, hey, the goal that you wanted to meet, you're about to fail at. And the product manager that has that OKR might be having a cow at this point in time. Let's go try to address the situation before we fail on our goals, which should be way before a catastrophic outage happens. Got it. So... Let's just kind of like put it all together here. So I, I brought in Honeycomb. Mm-hmm. I updated my uh, my logs. So now that I'm getting the context, right? I'm flowing all of that data in there. And now I am the, have the ability to create SLOs, which generally, right, we hope are really the business outcomes I want. What you're yep. just talking about, right? And that, and that should be the kind of plain l- language anyone can understand. Like what you were just going through, the 99... However many nines, like the orders are happening, the transactions are happening, trades are happening, whatever. Everybody in the business is going to understand that. And then that ultimately, right, is, you know, I think this is the promise, right? The promise is that now I'm focused in on only things that are changing that business outcomes, freeing me up to make that better and not be distracted by 
you know, all the other red light, green light that may or may not really have any impact on my overall systems. I mean, is that a fair summary of the, of what we're trying to do here? It is, but you should do the red light, green light, like right. infrastructure monitoring is a thing. Right. So it's infrastructure versus kind of was APM, but really looking at user experience. This is no joke. One of my largest customers, uh, we were on a webinar, like Pierre, one of our awesome, he runs our SA team. We were on a webinar. That was called the brunch and learn. He's doing a demo talking about SLOs. And we often show our SLOs at Honeycomb, not just the demo that you can see on our website, but we'll show people how we view your environment. And our ingestion service is running at 99.96. It's great. Um, I can see on a chart, like literally right on the screen, engineering wasn't being woken up because the SLO was still being met. But one of my largest customers did not know that they were having ingestion problems. That's the holy grail there, though, because, yes, I want to be able to predict that we're going to burn our error budget and, and we're going to go below our goals. But it's finding out the dark matter. Um, sometimes I say, like, find the stars so you can understand the dark matter. The stars are all the things we're doing well. And the dark matter is when Brandon sent data to Honeycomb and there was latency. If I don't know that Brandon is sending data to Honeycomb, and there's high latency, how am I ever supposed to really understand what's good? And that ability to say, cool, I'm not waking up engineering because Brandon's having latency, but my customer success team is keeping an eye on that. So being able to not only see the stars, but also the dark matter is super important because people focus on just the stars and say, well, you know that 0.001%? F them. Right. They don't intentionally say F them. I know what you mean, yeah. Uh -huh. But by the systems that they use and the aggregation they use, F them is just, they're just an, it's an noise. Yeah, yeah, I get you, the outlier. So, okay. All right, well, listen, <clears throat> I think we've we've broken it down. Hopefully everyone has a, a better understanding of observability. I know I do. Um, but as we always say in software defined talk, like, you know, you don't know until you try it. So let's let's give, give you a chance here to plug some stuff. I think, uh, you tell me, I think Honeycomb, is, this all, is it all software as a service? SaaS-based, yeah, right? And is, I don't know, what's the latest? What's the story on the free trial? Is there a free trial? Can I try it for free? What do I need to do? You can use it for free, right? Uh, so we have a, there's a free edition, which you can use for a, Honeycomb's priced on the number of events you send us in a time period, in a month or a year, right? So you can just start up today. Like, let's say, for example, if you uh, run a CI CD pipeline, there's a really cool tool we build called Build Events, which will give you tracing for your build pipelines. Build pipelines generate like hardly any data. Check build events out. Open up a Honeycomb free account. But of course, there's a self-service version called Honeycomb Pro. And if you want to talk to a salespeople that wears a Bucky's sweatshirt, that's called Honeycomb Enterprise. There's a trial for that. And we have a process for that as well. So, All right. But everyone, everyone that's interested in observability, yeah. you should yeah. just go try it, right? There's no, there's no amount of conversation that's either going to, you know, make you convince you, but hopefully you've heard enough. And I do think, I can't, I can't remember. I feel like I've seen charity managers major speak on a bunch of different YouTube stuff. Probably if you just search her, you can like, cause she has like a whole, uh, I, I would say she even gives like an academic kind of uh, definition of it. So if you're interested in that, um, I think that's really good too. So I'll just throw that out there uh, now. All right. So if somebody uh, wants to contact you because they want to become a yoga instructor or maybe because they want to um, learn more about Honeycomb, where can I find you on the internet? Uh, pretty easy to find uh, Michael Wild on Twitter. Uh, M I C H A E L wild. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. 
Um, you can email Michael or wildhoneycomb.io and uh you know uh Google will work. Uh if you type in my name or you type in the word Splunk Ninja. Splunk Ninja, all right. Well, Splunk that. Ninja, and you'll find me there from all my work at Splunk. But it was super great to uh to be able to chat with you with y'all and and hopefully out of this, everyone grows better jalapenos. That's what we want. And I do. And I, you know, you can't see it. People can't see it, but I hundred percent representing your, I don't know, maybe not your hometown, but the town you lived in for a long time with the Bucky's uh, shirt. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I'm going to make that (laughs) mandatory. All guests must wear Bucky's from now on. (laughs) Right. All right. right, Well, Michael, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks my friend. Appreciate it. And uh, I just want to let everyone know if this is your first time you've ever listened to software defined talk, well, welcome. Uh, you can probably uh, subscribe right now in the podcast player you're listening to, or you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. Uh, there you can join our Slack. You can uh, follow us on every type of social media. Uh, you can even email me if you uh, send an email with your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. I'll be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, we will talk to you next time.